Blasey was always learning new things himself. He said a farmer had to, to stay in business. Why, he knew as much about biology and botany and chemistry as most school teachers. Farm comes. process is a way to really facilitate and foster a trusting and resilient relationship. Welcome to the Farm Commons podcast. On this episode, we're going to talk about leasing relationships. A lease is the right to use someone's land. Nearly 40% of all farmland in the United States is leased. And as we'll learn more about today, leasing is a viable option when purchasing outright is either impossible or not desirable. At Farm Commons, we approach legal issues with two things in mind, management of legal risks and building community relationships. Leasing is a great example of how to incorporate both approaches. Leases are legal agreements. While it's understandable to be put off by legal matters, we definitely understand. We are going to invite you to look at the leasing process in a more holistic light. A lease can facilitate a deeper relationship between two parties connected to the land. An agricultural lease is really a dialogue between the landowner, the farmer, the land itself, and even the community surrounding it. In order to learn more about why leasing is a good option, we talked to someone who helps beginning farmers acquire land. My name is Melly McAdams, and I am the Farm Preservation Program Director at a nonprofit called Rogue Farm Corps. Uh, we're based in Oregon and serve the whole state. Uh, started as offering mainly internships to beginning farmers and ranchers, especially first generation folks who didn't have the luxury of growing up on a farm. And we started in southern Oregon, but we've since expanded to four areas around the state and also offer advanced-level internships. Rogue Farm Corps is a farming education organization. Nellie looks at what farmers do after their education, particularly how they can acquire resources such as land to begin operations. It's an important job because lots of people want to farm, and they want to do sustainable, responsible, community-oriented farming. But beginning farmers are having a hard time acquiring land. You know, unfortunately, the numbers of beginning farmers and ranchers are declining. So in Oregon, it's declined from 32% to 24% between the last two censuses. But I believe that a lot more people want to engage and that they just probably don't have the means to start and be successful as a principal operator and stay in business. I mean, especially if you aren't going to be inheriting the farmland, you as a beginning farmer need to have the track record and collateral to qualify for the financing that's going to pay for your land and equipment that will hopefully allow you to scale up so you can hire someone so that you can eventually be at a scale to pay yourself a living wage. And that takes a decade, maybe more, um, for a lot of people. And if you have a misstep anywhere along the line, um, that can be it for your business. We're facing two simultaneous crises. One, the aging of the farmer population, and two, the difficulties the beginning farmers and ranchers are facing in taking over those businesses. For farms and ranchers, it's not just their profession. It's also their identity, and it's really hard to retire from being who you are. Nellie says leasing can be a good solution to this, and she says it's a way to ease in to farming. Leasing is 
sometimes a very wise option, especially for a young business. If you are trying to save up for the land that you do want to farm, you might not have the money for the that down payment or that land might not be available. You probably also want to invest more in your infrastructure, both in your equipment or in your labor force than in your land in the first couple of years. So it can be a really wise investment strategy to lease, at least at the start, especially if you're leasing and considering purchasing in the future, at least can be like a test drive that you take for as long as you need until you're ready to purchase if you ever do want to purchase. But it is a way to learn the quirks of that land and that property and to see it over a number of seasons. But it is also an opportunity to get to know the landowner, especially if they were a farmer or rancher themselves. There's a lot of potential that they can provide mentoring, especially to a beginning farmer or rancher who doesn't have family members in the business. So Nellie hopes that by bringing beginning farmers together with landowners, particularly farmers who don't otherwise know ultimately what to do with their land, new relationships can be formed that will connect new farmers with old land and established farming communities. I think there's a lot of synergy that can happen. It just requires coordination and trust and ways for these people to connect. So here's the general rule of creating farm leases. You'll see it in our guides and other resources that we have. Commit it to memory. The best lease for your operation is the one that addresses your specific circumstances. In fact, a lease, as we said, is a relationship. And as we all know, you have to work on relationships. You have to build relationships. And that means communicating, confirming, and in the case of leasing, writing it down. First, What are you agreeing to? Be wary of boilerplate or online leases, prefab leases. You need to remind yourself that you're creating new standards for a new kind of farming. A pre-written lease might not cover all of your needs. I'm Erin Hannum, and I'm a research attorney for Farm Commons, and we provide legal support and education to small farmers. Oftentimes, farmers who are looking to enter a lease go online and maybe find farm form leases or templates that they want to use and perhaps go to the residential residential form lease. And there's a lot of differences, uh, so that wouldn't be advisable. Residential leases are going to deal more with like safe and kind of habitable conditions or just clean conditions, uh, and they're not going to really deal with really specific issues to agricultural farming. And these are some issues such as, you know, irrigation and water, or if there's farm animals, what about fencing, who's responsible for that? Even if the landowner presents a tiplet or a boilerplate agreement to the farmer, um, the farmer can, you know, raise questions with that and really start to on their own or working with an attorney to really work those provisions in their best interest. Agricultural leases are likely to contain unique things, and there are going to be a lot of provisions. A lease will likely contain limitations on premises use, provisions about facilities like storage, irrigation, electricity, trash, who fixes facilities, things about improvements, term and expiration and renewal and termination questions, and of course, rent questions, whether you're paying in cash, whether you're paying with a crop share, or whether you're doing a hybrid of rent rent through cash and crop share. So take, for example, improvements. 
agricultural leases, and particularly for long-term leases, farmers who are leasing the property are going to really maybe want to add some improvements, um, maybe a greenhouse or you know certain additions to the land that are going to make it a lot easier for them to run their farm operation. That's not really generally the case when someone goes and rents an apartment or a house for a year. They usually just take it as it is. So the lease for farming, for agricultural leases, and farmers really need to pay attention to what happens when these improvements are made or who's responsible for them. And oftentimes you can really negotiate with the landowner and get the landowner to pay for some of it either up front or if the lease terminates at the end, sort of the undepreciated value of those improvements. And that can be just a really beneficial conversation to have with the landowner to just really understand what will happen when the lease terminates and to be sure that if the farmer does put in a lot of investment to make such improvements that they're not all for nothing. Another thing with the early termination is what if you have this multi-year lease arrangement and then the landowner decides to terminate early but you've done all these improvements like like maybe you know, built a, a pretty substantial greenhouse or some other buildings or you know, even just the amendments to the soil, the quality of the soil that you've improved, the value of the landowner's land, and you've done it all at your own expense. So oftentimes early termination clauses will have what's called kind of like a liquidated damages to where it basically compensates the farmer some part of what they've invested in the land, thinking that they were going to have this contract, this lease arrangement for a longer period of time. They decided to make these improvements, but then if the landowner decides to cut it short, then the landowner basically gets a huge windfall because they get the benefit of all these improvements. The early termination clause would have a liquidated damages, which basically would provide some compensation to the farmer for those improvements. And that's just a really fair deal because ultimately the landowner is getting the benefit of that. If the landowner and the farmer have entered this lease for, say, 10 years, and the farmer decides to build a well that has a life of 50 years, and the way they would do that, one way of um, taking account for that value of the well is for the end of the lease at the termination time that the farmer would be compensated for the undepreciated value of that well at that 10-year period of time. These are all things that you need to agree on in advance with the person you're leasing from. Next, and we can't emphasize this enough, verbal-only leases are risky as compared to written ones. Memories fail. Verbal leases are often difficult to enforce. For the best chance of enforcing a lease and the least amount of problems during the lease term, write it down. You know, there are so many benefits to having a lease in writing. One of those benefits that most people talk about, particularly lawyers, is the legal enforceability of it. So if you have a a lease, particularly a long-term lease, most state statutes require that any lease that's longer for a one-year period of time, it has to be in writing in order in order for it to be uh, legal and legally enforceable. So that means that a court can enforce it. We don't really think that's even the most important. We think the most important reason to get it in writing is really the benefit at the get-go of having the parties sit down and, as you say, communicate their needs and really understand and come to a mutual agreement and understanding of how they want that relationship to be. Next, you should be aware of what relationship your lease has with your municipality and state in the eyes of the law. So, for example, some states prohibit leases for greater than a certain number of years. Alabama has a maximum of 20 years. 
on land leases. Uh, North Dakota is, is only 10 years, and Wisconsin's is 15 years. So be aware that if you are entering into a long-term lease relationship, it's actually legal in your state. Also, to protect yourself, you should register or record the lease with your county land records office. These offices go by various names. Register of Deeds, County Recorder's Office, the Deeds Registry, the County Clerk's Office. This lets anyone know publicly that you have a lease on that land. That might also protect you against undue transfer or termination issues. Also, consider separating the residential from the commercial lease. Residential leases often have extra protections in terms of eviction processes and the standards that the house must be kept up to. You can lose those protections if the lease is considered for commercial purposes. So if you're doing both residential and commercial leasing at the same time and in the same space, you need to distinguish your residential rights from your commercial rights. That'll help to clarify what you're protected from. really important that the landowner's farmer really think through what happens when the lease ends. Who gets what? Ending things can sometimes be hard. It can be hard because one or the other side doesn't want it to end. It can even be difficult when both sides want it to end. And it can be most difficult when the ending is abrupt and one party ends up hurt because of it. We're going to talk about all those situations, and we've even brought a couple of uh, farmers aboard, our friends Greg and Josie, to talk about their experiences. Obviously, both renewal provisions and termination provisions need to be explicit in the lease. Does the lease renew automatically, or do specific steps need to be taken by either party? If the lease renews automatically, when and how does either side give notice that they don't want the lease to renew? How about if the tenant decides not to renew? Are there duties that he or she must fulfill, like planting cover crops? If the landlord decides not to renew, is the tenant compensated for any increased land value from improvements? For example, hoop houses, wells, like we talked about a few minutes ago. Does the tenant have the right to remove improvements? And can the lease be terminated? This often happens on default, which means... Either party does something specific, which allows the other party to terminate the lease. Are there acts uh, that you would like to designate as triggering a default? For example, using certain chemicals would trigger a default and end the lease. Transfer issues are also important to avoiding bad termination scenarios. If the farmer dies and decides not to continue farming, can the lease be transferred to another individual? What happens if the landlord dies? Most farmers are going to want to make sure that the lease still attaches to any future landowners, and so the lease should state that. You know, early termination, even if provided for, isn't always easy. Sometimes it happens because of forces outside of both parties' control. My name is Josie Erskine. I have a diverse, perhaps you would call it microfarm, in Boise, Idaho. Josie has been in several land relationships. So I've experienced leasing property from um, multiple people. From when we first started farming, you know, um, in our early 20s, when we were kind of really young and excited, and um, the people that we would lease from were young and excited also, 
and didn't see that there was going to be any value kind of what we were doing and so they were helping us out and it was just a handshake and there was no monetary exchange and within a few years really building a beautiful farm um, starting to see profit off of it and see that relationship change where the owners of that property then felt taken advantage of because there was being profit made when they never thought that was going to really happen. And so I really think that it's wise to create a lease and a rental agreement early on um, before someone becomes profitable. Because at the point that the leasee has the most power is when they don't seem like they're ever going to make any money. But if you start making money, then and then you want to go into a rental agreement with a monetary, it's going to be much different. I always think it's wise to get a rental agreement, a lease written, and have everybody stay on the same place. Uh, we're terminating a lease right now that we thought we would have for a really long time, and it's for multiple reasons. A subdivision is coming in right next to us or a planned community. So 1,700 homes is being built on the property that's right next to us. They're going to use their agricultural water right from the aquifer that we pump from for their municipal water rights, for their drinking water. And so I can see that within the next seven to 15 years, there is a possibility that I will be in legal battles over water. Um, as leasers, I'm not really interested in, in a water battle. Josie's experience is a careful, if unexpected, withdrawal from a lease. Greg, on the other hand, had a really different experience. Greg and his wife had several pieces of land they'd made varying arrangements to farm on. They were just starting their ventures. They didn't think to get provisions in writing, and in one instance, a tenant on a farmland allowed Greg to harvest cabbage and other veggies in a small strip on that rented land. But there was a falling out among co-tenants, and that meant that the relationship between Greg and the tenant fell through. Greg and his vegetables were basically collateral damage. In the end, Greg and his wife had to do late-night harvesting to save their cabbages. At that point, uh, things just really blew up with a friend and this other guy, and there were uh, pretty heated moments. And, and so we decided, okay, we've gotten our losses. We're just getting out of here. Um, but right at the same time, all this cabbage was coming on, and, and so we ended up, um, we were well accustomed to, to wearing headlamps and, and harvesting, so we said, okay, we're going to go there in the middle of the night. We're going to... We're going to harvest as much of this cabbage as we possibly can, hopefully unseen, and uh, just cut the rest of our losses because everything else was quite a way down the road before harvest. And so that's what we did, and, and we, we got away with it, but it was, there were some tense, uh, tense moments uh, <laughs> doing it. I, I forget how many pounds of cabbage we 
the crazy things we did over the years. I'm I'm trying to imagine the 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 soundtrack for that scene. I'm I'm yeah. picturing the scene, and I don't is it you know kind of bluegrass hoedown banjo music or is it scary music? Yeah. Uh, is it the theme from Dukes of Hazard? So what did Greg learn over this incident? Right away from it, you know, we looked at every situation that we were growing on other people's lands from that uh, and, and realized we just, we have to have good relationships, you know, and continually have these lines of communication open at the very least. And, and then, you know, to go even a step further and, and have written leases, that even took us a couple more years to kind of wrap our heads around and push for that. Creating clear termination or other transition terms and getting them in writing remains the best risk management device at your disposal. Of course, an attorney can help both at the formative stage of the lease and also in circumstances where there's a falling out and nothing can be done about it. To try to work it out amongst yourself, but that just doesn't happen all the time. And it's, it's a good idea to at that point get an attorney involved and to really be sure that your, your rights and your interests are protected. But we hope it doesn't get to that point. Clear communication on the front end is one way to avoid bad termination issues, which are unpleasant, whether or not you're harvesting cabbage in the dark. On, lease, on farmland leases. Uh, one that I would start with is a webinar called Farmland Leases Built to Last, Content and Legal Context. And that's going to go into a little bit more detail on some of the big issues that farmers are going to want to look into that arise with dealing with agricultural leases. Another one that's really great is sort of a checklist. It's drafting a lease, questions for farmers and landowners to ask. So that's going to go kind of provision by provision in a, a, a agricultural lease is going to kind of walk through different ways of handling each of the issues in a lease. And another one for farmers who are interested in more longer-term leases, um, we have inspirations for creating a long-term agricultural lease for agroforestry, a workbook. That's going to be more extensive resource that's going to talk about longer-term leases and particularly how farmers go about dealing, dealing with improvements and those types of things in a long lease scenario, such as 10 years or, or such. I want to draw particular attention to drafting a lease, questions for farmers and landowners to ask. This is an amazing resource. It's the longest list of questions I've seen since law school exams. But these aren't questions designed to mess with your mind. Instead, there are several categories, each with several questions. Examples like the category of the basics. Who are the parties involved and when does the lease begin and end? Uh, the category of rights of the farmer. Can the farmer engage in commercial use? The category of production. What stewardship practices can the parties require of each other? The category of facilities. What storage access does the farmer have? Categories such as renewal, communication, transfer, other considerations like insurance and the right of first refusal if the landowner decides to sell the land. If you're going to enter into a lease agreement, you absolutely need this guide and it's absolutely free. Just go to farmcommons.org, register, and then shop. And shop is in quotes there because everything on the site is free. And I wrote an article about agroforestry leasing. It's really about leasing in general and it's called 
A New Lease on Life with Agroforestry. You can find it in the uh, online in the volume 25 issue 2 of Inside Agroforestry. That's a 2017 issue. It's available online. You can just Google A New Lease on Life with Agroforestry. I want to conclude with something Nellie McAdams said when we talked. It's about the long-term implications of the loss of farmland, a situation made more difficult when we don't connect beginning farmers with land opportunities. In Oregon, we did research on who was purchasing agricultural land in four key counties of the state. And we found that among those counties, 25 to 40 percent of the land sales, even more of acreage, was going to business entities that were looking to invest or um, speculate on development. So um, those entities might be from outside the state, outside of the country even, and their primary motive is to get profits for their shareholders. That is their only motive. Whereas a family farmer or rancher who owns these lands has a lot of other complex interests that cause them to make choices that are more sustainable, maybe for the farm and its associated wildlife habitat or how it's managed. So these investment companies are going to hold it for as long as it's valuable. And then when they sell it, they're going to try and maximize the return. So they would be more likely to push to subdivide, develop the land, or put it in a non-farm use. And the problem there is once it's gone, it never comes back. Leases are really relationships. Those relationships require work and a careful analysis of how to minimize everybody's risk and maximize everybody's happiness. After all, you're all involved in this process because you love the land. Correct leasing will help you actualize that love. And remember, the best lease for your operation is the one that addresses your specific circumstances. Thanks for listening. We have not and will not cover everything in these podcasts, and we aren't giving legal advice. Talk to an attorney if you have specific questions about your farming situation. This material is funded in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Risk Management Agency. Music comes courtesy of Huma Huma and Jason Shaw and Audionautics Music under a Creative Commons license. The Executive Director of Farm Commons is Rachel Armstrong. Our lead research attorney is Aaron Hannum, and I'm Matt Stannard. Want to contact us? Visit farmcommons.org and click Contact.